All right, it's 10 o'clock. We'll go ahead and start. We're thankful for those who are able to make it and those who are tuning in online. And for those of you who are tuning in online who weren't able to come because of illness or whatever, we miss you. But we're glad that you still get to join us on the Internet. And we're in 2 Kings chapter 11. 2 Kings chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I'll remind you that Athaliah, this wicked mother of Ahaziah, who was formerly a king, but who was slain by Jehu's army, Athaliah has placed herself on the throne of Israel, and she has no business there. God didn't appoint her there. She took that throne by force, and she reigned for six years over the land. But before this, God had already ordained that up to the fourth generation of uh, Jehu's seed would be on the throne, and she wasn't in that. She wasn't in that plan. And so Jehoiada, who was the high priest in those days, made sure that even though Athaliah had killed all of the royal seed, all of the children who could possibly inherit the throne, that she wouldn't get to Joash. Joash was a little thing. And so Joash was hid, hidden from Athaliah in the house of the Lord. And that's where we picked up last week. And we learned in verses 4 through 6 that Jehoiada, the high priest, had summoned all of the captains and the guards, and of course the Levites were under his authority anyway, and started making a battle plan to station them at various places to guard the king's house and to guard the house of the Lord. And so it was a military-like strategy that was being put into place by Jehoiada, the high priest. And he wasn't just guarding the king's house or just guarding the Lord's house, but there was an even greater plan, and that was to repossess the king's house. Remember, Athaliah was there. That's not her place. Joash was to be placed on that throne. And It wasn't that he was just to be king, just so we could say, well, the fourth generation of Jehu's seed would be on the throne. Now, that was important, but it was to return a godly seed, a godly king, to that throne. We'll read a few things about Joash that will show you that that was so. Now, the protecting of the Lord's house that was to be done in all of this. That wasn't just to preserve the building. Buildings come and go, don't they? It wasn't just to preserve the instruments or the furnishings, but to preserve the righteousness of which the Lord's house is to be a type. When you go into a church, or in those days when you went to the tabernacle, righteousness should have been the hallmark of that building, of all who entered, of all the activities and things that took place there, of every word said and every song sung. But it wasn't always the case, and it's not today. Now let's look in verse 7, and then we'll go into verse 8. 
and spend a considerable amount of time there. Verse 7, And two parts of all you that go forth on the Sabbath, even they shall keep watch of the house of the Lord about the king. So the two-thirds of this group were to guard the house of the Lord while the king was there. Guarding the king was their principal duty, but in doing so, they would also guard the house of the Lord. So they were killing two birds with one stone. And then verse 8, now he set everybody up where they need to be. He said, you go here and you go there and you go there. This is your job. This is your job. Look at verse 8. And ye shall compass the king round about. That means surround him. Every man with his weapons in his hand. And he that cometh within the ranges, let him be slain. And be ye with the king as he goeth out and as he cometh in. And we're going to spend some time on this verse. God revealed a whole bunch of truths to me. They just jumped out at the page. And that happens when you study his word. You start showing you what's in there and what's in. This is not some secret mysterious revelation that some so-called preachers claim they get from God. I would never say that. But the spirit of God is my teacher. And he's your teacher too, even though I'm your Sunday school teacher. It's God who teaches you. I can put a bunch of information out there and study, study, study. And you can nod your head and say amen. But if God doesn't teach your heart... If you don't accept what he teaches, you won't ever learn it. So uh, I love when people learn the Bible, regardless of who's teaching it, because then I know God taught them. Within the ranges, now we don't use that phrase exactly as it's used here. In the middle of the verse, it says, And he that cometh within the ranges, let him be slain. Within the ranges means within the row, a row of soldiers. Now you picture that, a row of soldiers. There was a certain line that was marked off. And that certain line was where those soldiers were lined up in formation. They were in a row. And anyone who attempted to breach that line to go through it, would be killed. Now they could stand on the other side of it and look at the soldiers and all of that, but if they tried to go through it, they would be killed because on the other side of those soldiers was a precious commodity, a little boy who was a king. And the children of Israel were given some instructions at the foot of Mount Sinai back in Exodus, and this was after God brought them out of Egypt. And I want you to compare what we see there with what we see here in our text. Exodus chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. Exodus 19, 11 through 13. And here's what Moses said to the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. And be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds, B-O-U-N-D-S, Unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. So God had instructed Moses to set a boundary 
around the mountain and that nobody was allowed to pass that under the penalty of death. They could stay on this side of it. They could observe it, but they could not pass it or they would die. In the Exodus passage there, the word bounds represented the holiness of the Lord. And he had in front of him an unholy people, those who were in sin, which is what all of us are. There's not a one of us, Old Testament or New Testament, who can approach the holiness of the Lord in our own flesh. None. That's why we approach in the person of Jesus Christ. So we're looking at an unholy people, a complaining and murmuring people, an idolatrous people, who had been told, do not breach the boundary, the bounds around that mountain. And although the Hebrew words for bounds in that text and ranges in our text are different, they're very close in meaning. So for the Hebrew children to cross the bounds was a sin that would be met with instant death. And in our text, for anyone to come within the ranges, to pass the border created by Jehoiada's men, the Levites and the soldiers, was a sin to be met with instant death. It's the same thing. In other words, going within the ranges was the same as going out of bounds. Now we understand the term out of bounds, don't we? This is very much like a secret service detail in a time of a crisis. And normally you'll see, I've I've, uh, heard from secret service agents that their job may be described as 99% boredom and 1% absolute chaos. And that's about right. Sometimes that's the way it is in in my job. I'm never bored, but uh, it's rarely chaos. And when it is, it's all the way. But a secret service detail during a time of crisis would prevent anyone from passing a certain point if the president or their protectee's life was possibly in danger. And if they did, then they're going to be eliminated, especially if they come with a knife or a bat or a gun or something else. And the group of bodyguards that we're reading about in our text were to be with the king no matter where he went. Now I want you to look at a couple of phrases here, and these were uh, enlightening to me as I read verse 8. It says at the, the end of the verse, And be ye with the king, now he's talking to these bodyguards, Be ye with the king as he goeth out, and as he cometh in. In other words, there is danger If you're not around, if you're not with the king when he goes out and when he comes in, there's not ever a time you can leave him alone. Let's look at as he goeth out. They're to be with him as he goeth out, to protect him as he goeth out. The danger involved in going out is that sometimes the king has to leave the protection of his living quarters. The living quarters are fortified, they're well guarded, the king can eat all of his meals and sleep and carry on his royal duties within the palace, within the quarters where he lives. But when he goes out, 
he leaves the protection he had at home. He can't take those walls with him. He can take some of the guard with him, but now they're in unfamiliar territory. And those who protect him have to go out with him and be ready at all times to protect him from unknown dangers that may lurk outside the protection of his living quarters. Now, as he cometh in, look at that phrase, as he cometh in. The dangers as he cometh in, in other words, when he returns to that place of protection, those living quarters, the palace or the Lord's house, in this case, the dangers here are less external and more internal. And although a marauding band of assassins would have a hard time breaking into the palace, there are often those inside the palace who want to harm the king. Just pull your history book out. Well, you can pull your Bible out, and that'll give you plenty of them. Remember, Hazael uh, put a wet cloth over King Ben-Hadad and smothered him when he was sick, killed him. We just read about that a few chapters ago. Poison food or a knife in the back might be on the mind of one who is closest to the king. Someone whose arm is around the king, whether figuratively or realistically. Protecting the king as he cometh in is not an easy job. In fact, in some ways, it can be harder to be vigilant against the sneaky, even the unlikely traitor than against the sure foe, the enemy who's on the battlefield, who has a different uniform on, who looks differently. You can say, that's an enemy, take him out. But you don't know who the enemies are on the inside. Here's an example. In my profession, in my place of employment, we have an enforcement division, and we have an administrative division, and we have a detention Division where our jail is. And it's a very nice jail. It's relatively new, still being uh, tweaked and, and all of that. But in that jail, our detention staff has a very important, often boring, but occasionally chaotic job. They're responsible for the safety and the security and the well being of our inmates. And some people may say, well, they don't need it. Yes, they do. They're innocent until proven guilty, and regardless of what they've done, they deserve to be safe and secure and taken care of. That's our job. That's our responsibility. The law says we have to do it. And so that's what our detention officer's job is. Now, we have walls, and we have alarm systems and fences and all sorts of things that keep people from getting out and it keep people from coming in. But on the inside... We have dangers that lurk as well. Now, when our inmates are transported from the jail to the courthouse for their various hearings and to meet with uh, the prosecutor and so forth, depending on what they're doing, that's when they're going out, as the king goeth out. But, and certainly we don't want an inmate to escape during that time. We don't want someone trying to silence them by ambushing our detention officers en route to court. So there are certain things that they do and strategies they take to 
keep that from happening, and we don't reveal those to the public. But when an inmate arrives safely back in our jail, from wherever he went or she went, and they're put into their cells, our detention staff can't say, oh, good, everybody's safe now. No, because there are dangers that lurk within as well. We have to continue to protect them as they come in. Some inmates are gang members. Others have a beef with some other inmate over something sometimes as trivial as what is on the television. And our detention officers have to check every cell and every inmate on a schedule. And I know from watching them, it gets boring for them, especially when everybody's asleep. And they still have to go and punch these buttons and look in cells and make sure that everything is okay. And it would be easier for them to just sit at the desk and say, they're asleep, I'm not going to go bother them. And sometimes that happens. And that's a good way for a detention officer to get fired. So it's trivial, it seems. But if a detention officer fails to carry out one of those duties then he has failed to protect the inmates as they cometh in. The worst nightmare that my sheriff could have, the worst phone call he could get concerning his jail, is that either an inmate has escaped from a transport vehicle or has hung himself in a jail cell. One was a failure to protect the inmate as he goeth out. And one was a failure to protect the inmate as he cometh in. And Jehoiada wants no leaks in the protection of the king whom God has appointed as a ruler over Israel. Now remember, this little king was seven years old at the time we're reading about in chapter 11. So as a seven-year-old, you think about seven-year-olds, I've got a granddaughter who will be seven next year, and uh, we have some children in our church who are not too far from that age, or some of them are that age. And they're not wise to the schemes of evil men and women, either outside or inside the palace. And that would be the case with little Joash. So this brings us to another vital truth concerning our children. We've talked about how the king was to be protected as he goeth out and cometh in. I gave you the example of, of our jail. Well, what about our children? Speaking of Joash, what about our children? Protecting our children when they goeth out and when they cometh in is the job of every parent. It's not someone else's job. Now, let me tell you, if somebody's little girl or little boy started running across the street and that person was too far away, I would go out there and pull them out of the street. I wouldn't say, well, that's not my job. But I'm also, I don't agree with Hillary Clinton that it takes a village to raise a child. I do not. It takes two dedicated parents if, they're, if it's possible to have them. But uh, protecting our children when they come out or go out and when they come in is our job. When they're little, and I mean little, they don't go outside without a responsible person, usually the parent, watching what they do. Because we don't want them to run in the street or pick up a scorpion or 
get in the car with a stranger, things like that that could hurt them or kill them. And then when our children are a little older, and perhaps we can let them go out in the backyard and play without us being out there with them, we still require that somebody responsible supervise them. And let me tell you, that list was very short for me when my children were little. Lots of people wanted to have my children over to do this or that, and I didn't trust many people. I loved them, but I didn't trust my commodities with very many people. It was usually just my parents and occasionally some very close friend to us. But what about when they cometh in? In all of that protection, when they go out of the house, we, we have certain things we do and we allow and so forth and things we forbid. But what about when they come in? Is the job over when they cometh in? It's not, is it? How do we protect them when they cometh in? Well, very practically, we direct their activities and their interests. If you're a Christian parent, you do that in such a way to make them more godly. That's where you teach them things is in the home. We teach them to love by setting that example. We teach them respect, integrity, and other virtuous character traits. And whatever interferes with that, we forbid it. If we're going to teach them to speak politely to people, then we don't put up with impolite speech inside the house. And even though they may not think so, we're protecting them whenever we correct that behavior. We don't let them watch things on television that are raunchy or immoral or things that give them nightmares. You know, the television used to be the only electronic device in the house other than the, the radio that had just a few stations and gather around and listen to baseball games on it when I was a little boy. But along came the internet and the smartphone and online gaming and all of those things. And those devices allowed the entire world to be before your children's eyes inside your own house. And I think, I'll tell you, my hat's off to parents who began parenting when the Internet and the smartphone and all that had already hit the street. Because your job was a lot harder than mine. Now, it began to be introduced as my children were growing up, and then, of course, we had to deal with that as well. So I know what that's like. But I believe it's made parenting even more difficult than it was when I was young. It's always been difficult. We didn't have we didn't even have pagers when I was a little boy and I made my mom pull her hair out. So I know parenting was difficult. I was one of the people who made it that way unintentionally, but I did. Protecting our children when they come in is not just about keeping them from doing certain things. It's more about teaching them to think and to do what's right. And it's about instilling in them godly values while they're with us. So when they go out for good one day, they'll have all they need to live in this wicked world. It doesn't mean they will, but it does mean they can. How could little... Joash grow into a wise, godly, healthy king unless he was protected as he goeth out and as he cometh in. 
And now this incredible passage here brings us to another truth, a deeper truth, even deeper than the protection of a seven-year-old king, even more profound than the protection of our own children, and that's the protection that God has offered his church, his own children, by faith in Christ Jesus. He protects us when we go without. Once Adam and Eve forfeited the protection that God gave them in the garden, they went out from the garden. Did you notice that? They were in the garden. They didn't need any protection when they go without because they were in the garden. But because of sin, they went out from the garden. God kicked them out. They lived the rest of their natural lives in a fallen world. And we have lived our entire natural lives in a fallen world. Now, it wasn't God's perfect will for Adam and Eve to need the protection as they go without. His perfect will was for them to obey his commandment, the one they could, do, they could eat from any tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were not to eat from it. That was the only commandment they had. His perfect will was that they wouldn't go out. They weren't supposed to go out. But because of sin and man's sin nature, we have to walk in this fallen world. And we need God's protection when we do. You know, God protects his people not the way most people think of. Here's how most people think of God's protection, and it is, by the way, but it's not the primary means by which he protects us. There have been crashes that I've worked, and when I arrive on the scene, I'll look at the car and I'll think, well, I'm going to have a body around here somewhere, and find out that that person is up and walking around and think, how did he survive? And people would say God protected him. And I certainly believe that. But that's as deep as it goes for some people. They think, well, God's going to protect me from cancer. God's going to protect me from being poor or from this thing or that thing. That's a shallow understanding of God's protection. Because if that's the way you understand it, then you'll never understand what he told the Apostle Paul. When Paul said that he had a thorn in the flesh, and three times he asked the Lord to take it away from him, and God said, no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, the shallow thinker would say, well, then God didn't protect Paul from that thorn in the flesh. That's because they don't really understand what God's protection is. Did you hear the word grace? <laughs> His grace. God's grace is what Paul needed more than he needed that thorn to be removed from his flesh. And we don't know what that thorn was, very possibly an eye problem. It doesn't really matter. It was something that bothered him, that affected his health. And we need God's protection. In fact, listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33. John 16, verse 33. Jesus said, to his disciples, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Did you hear that? 
He didn't say in the world, I want you to have peace. I don't want you to be in car wrecks. I don't want you to be uh, to get sick. I don't want anything bad to happen to your family and all of that. He didn't say that's where you'd have your peace. He said in me, you might have peace. In the world, you shall have tribulation. Now this is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, telling us that if you're looking for protection by avoiding tribulation, if you think, well, I'll know when God's protecting me because he won't let me go through tribulation, you do not understand what he just said. We're thankful when God heals somebody from an illness, from an injury, brings them through surgery. We continue to lift those people up in prayer. We don't ever come to the conclusion that we just won't pray for people because we're only going to pray for spiritual things. No, we pray for everything. In everything, with thanksgiving, let your supplication be made known to God. Prayer and thanksgiving. Jesus said we'd have tribulation in the world. So carnal man says, well, that doesn't sound like protection. I don't want to die. I don't want to get sick. I don't want to be poor. Listen, man once had protection from every bit of that. Did you know that? In the garden. And man cast it aside. We forfeited. In our father Adam, we forfeited the protection that he and Eve had before sin entered into the world. So what about the protection God gives us, the church? We need his protection when we walk in the world, and we have it. It's the peace. It's peace through the Lord Jesus Christ in all the afflictions that are around us. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way that we can handle it when somebody we love dies or is cruelly treated or when we lose our jobs for no apparent reason, no good reason, is the peace of God. If we didn't have that, we'd be more of a mess than we already are. And the protection he gives us when we go without is his peace. It's only available through the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what this world does to our bodies, the peace of God is our protection when we go without. But when we cometh in, what are we coming in from? We're saying God protects us, or the Bible is teaching us that God protects us when we cometh in. What are we coming in from? The world. That's what we're coming in from. Now don't think for a moment that just entering the doors of a church sitting in the church pew is coming in from the world. It should be. There shouldn't be anything that happens in here that is similar or in agreement with the worldly philosophy. The fact that we come in here dressed decently and the fact that people outside the doors of the church dress decently is a good thing. That means that there's there are righteous things that happen outside the church door. People covering up their bodies. That's a good thing. It's a small thing in the big picture, but it's a good thing. We're all glad for it, aren't we? But if the world says, hey, the number one song on the pop charts this week is such and such by this person who apparently only has one name. Well, you know what we don't do? We don't say, hey, Miss Francis, would you learn that song? That's the number one song on the chart. We need to try to sing that in here. No, we don't. 
If it's number one with the world, you can be certain it's not number one in the church, in the Lord's church. And it won't be. And that's not what we're about anyway. But the church is, as we've learned, not just the building, it's the people. The people are the church, no matter whether we have a building or not. And the dangers that lurk in the average church building all across the world right now, this morning, well, in places where church is assembling at this time, the greatest danger is heresy. It is, or it consists of the doctrines that are taught by unbelieving pastors and teachers. That's the greatest danger within. We know we have it without. We don't expect to walk to the supermarket or the mall and encounter a bunch of people preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we hear somebody doing it, we say, hey, I like that. That's good stuff. But we don't expect to hear that at all. We expect worldliness. Worldly people doing worldly things, peppered here and there with somebody who is a Christian, trying to be a bright and shining light. And that's really the way it is. But when we come into the church, we ought to expect to see nothing that looks like the world, but everything that looks like what the Lord Jesus Christ ordained, what he commanded. We expect to see love for God and love for each other inside the church and all of the doctrines that proceed from that. So how does God protect us when we cometh in? How does he protect us from the heresy, the error in doctrines He does it by the truth of his word. That's the protection he offers you in here. You have the peace of God, which, by the way, doesn't stop at the door. That's what protects us out in the world. You have the peace of God inside the doors. You also have the truth of God that is taught in here. Do we expect God's truth to be taught outside the doors of the church in the world? No. Boy, it would be nice, wouldn't it? But it's just not going to happen. The prince of the power of the air won't stand for it. He'll stand for a bunch of religion, but not truth. And if the truth is taught and believed, and then when the people are here, they're protected when they cometh in. They're not going to believe a lie because they know the truth. Even if a terrorist blows up the building while we're in it, we're still protected by God's truth That we have believed. That bomb, that terrorist, that explosion, all of that, all that will do is just take our bodies out. It will not affect the truth. It will not affect the peace that we have with God. And it's the responsibility of those who teach God's word to keep in mind that truth protects but lies harm. Truth protects the people when they cometh in. Lies harm the people when they cometh in. And when Jesus comes to gather his people, then we will once again be with the Lord in the way he originally designed when he put man and woman in the garden. And in the person of Jesus, we are and we will be as secure as Adam and Eve were in the garden, except in our case, there won't be the possibility of getting kicked out of the garden again, will there, Brother Doug? of sin causing us to have to go out from the presence of the Lord and to need protection when we go without. 
I'll be glad when that day comes when I don't have to go without. I don't have to go out into the world anymore. Let's look at verse 9 now. And the captains over the hundreds did according to all things that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they took every man his men that were to come in on the Sabbath with them that should go out on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada. Not the military commanders. Jehoiada was the incident commander in this case. I'm going to use that analogy of incident command. The orders he passed down were complete and they were binding. And if just one person neglected his duties, then harm could befall the king, this little boy king. In the world of emergency management and first responders, which is a very large group of people, by the way, the incident command system is one we use from small scenes such as a car crash that causes the traffic backup to large scenes such as the one that happened up in Lamar County this week, the tornado that tore down 40-some-odd structures and affected people's lives. That's a, well, that's a large incident. An even larger one would be when a hurricane takes out an entire city or county. But we use the incident command system. Otherwise, everyone's running around like what? Chicken with his head cut off. And it doesn't get anything done. And though we're from different fields in that incident command system, we have deputies and firefighters and troopers and paramedics and record drivers. I know. Yes, we do. They are part of our incident command system. How else are you going to clear a road if you don't have a good tow truck driver knows what he's doing? But we all become one team under the incident command system. And normally there will be one incident commander. Sometimes he'll have another with him. Some other agency will join him. And that incident commander will receive information from everyone, from all the different groups. Make decisions with his group of experts and then pass those orders back to the supervisors of those various agencies. In other words, the incident commander won't go out and meet with every single deputy and every single trooper and paramedic and firefighter and tow truck driver and hazardous material technician. He'll tell their supervisors and see that's what Jehoiada did. It said, the captains over the hundreds did according to all things that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they took every man... His men. You see how that worked? Jehoiada said to the captains, here's what you do. And they went and communicated that to their men. For example, the incident commander, we had a, a very large structure fire in Fate there in Rockwall County a few months ago. And uh, as you've probably now read on Facebook, we believe it was an arson. Very, very good possibility, probability that it was an arson. But in either case... It was an entire apartment complex that was still in the framing and roughing in process, and it burned to the ground, and it endangered other houses. So this was a, a, quite an event in fate in Rockwall County. 
And the incident commander in that case was a, a fire, uh, not a captain, but that would often be the case, but he was a fire lieutenant. And one of the requests he had was that traffic be blocked from coming down a certain street because that's where the fire engines would be and the hoses would run across the road from the hydrants and all of that. And so when the, when the incident commander said, I need this street blocked, well, the sheriff's office, that's me, said, we got it. Now, what the incident commander did not have to do is tell me, now, Andy, if you'll position your car a certain way and put your reflective vest on and have your flashlight in your hand and be sure you stand at this place, and he didn't have to tell me any of that. You know why? I already knew what to do. All he had to tell me is, can you block traffic? Yes, sir, I got it. And he didn't have to worry about me anymore. He doesn't have to worry about the sheriff's office. We know what to do once we get our general assignment. And that incident commander has to know, just as Jehoiada did, that we're going to do everything required to block traffic, that we have all the equipment we need, and that we will not leave our posts or abandon our duties until we are assigned to do so. That incident commander has to have absolute confidence that that is the case. He doesn't need to have to worry about that another second. And at a large structure fire, I'll tell you this, that blocking traffic is not the most fun assignment to get. It's not. The firefighters on the ladder trucks, and we had some impressive ladder trucks, went way up in there. I didn't know a ladder could go that far. And fire hoses at the top, and I mean it was being attacked from all angles. Now, they're the ones who had the exciting job, weren't they? Oh, it's dangerous, all right. But imagine if I thought my traffic blocking assignment wasn't really that important. I wanted to go closer to the fire trucks, and I wanted to watch, maybe even get to hold the hose one time. And so I just left my place. And after I left my post, some citizen drove across that fire hose, causing it to rupture. Then all of that water that had been directed from the fire hydrant through that hose to the end of that nozzle to put out the fire that was endangering houses all around it, that water was done for. Now that water would be flowing down the street where it does absolutely no good for the fire. Now, there's a lesson here, not just a cool story. That was my assignment during that fire. So when my relief came, a rookie deputy who I had helped train, he'd never been a cop before, and he'd never been to something like this. He'd never worked one. And so I knew that. And instead of just telling this rookie deputy, hey, you need to block traffic on this road, I showed him the large diameter fire hose that was just a few feet away from us. I said, do you see that? I said, that, has, that hose is a high-pressure hose. It's got thousands and thousands of gallons of water coming through in a very short time, and it's going to the end of that ladder truck right there that has water on the fire. And I said, if somebody runs over that hose, it will rupture it, and it will cause them to lose water, and then the fire is going to spread in their direction. So, 
What I want you to do is to make sure not one person drives over that fire hose. And the way to do that is to put your car right here. You stand here. Make sure you have your... See what I did? Instead of just saying, hey, would you block traffic? I'm ready to go home. Or I'm ready to go to my next assignment. I explained to him how important his job was when he got there. And even though others may not have thought so, he understood then. He said he understood and he did his job well until he was relieved. And I want to encourage anyone, and this isn't just pastors and teachers, this is anyone who teaches God's word. Parents being the, the big target here. And you might say, well, I, I teach Sunday school, but I've only got one or two kids in my class or one or two adults. My job's really not that important. I mean, look at these mega churches that have thousands of people and hundreds in Sunday school classes and all that. Don't you ever underestimate the importance of your job. Your job is to protect those who you're teaching and to do anything other than teaching them God's word as if it's the very breath of life is to abandon your duties and let that fire hose get run over. And even if his duty was not the most exciting or the most rewarding, every person under Jehoiada's command was expected to do his duty until he was relieved. And the larger the incident, the more duties there are. And under Jehoiada's command were soldiers and priests and probably others. Jehoiada was not a soldier. So he did not have to tell the soldiers how to wield their swords and hold their shields and their spears and all of that. They were experts at that. He simply needed for them to protect the king until he said, the coast is clear. And not one man, not one man could fail to do what the incident commander ordered. And with that, we'll stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth that proceeds from your word. Thank you for your spirit who teaches us, who embeds these doctrines in our hearts. And Lord, as we go from this place, let this time not be a waste to us, but help us to meditate upon the truth, to live by it, and to remember that you as the greatest of all incident commanders have told us what we need to do and help us to do it by your grace in Jesus name. Amen.